Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit help us to open our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. Again, that might sound repetitious, but nevertheless, most of our prayers turn out to be repetitious, uh, but we don't want them to be that way. Prayer should be uh, two sentiments of our heart, whether the words are repeated over and over again or not. It is the mind and the heart that counts. So we offer that to you in this session today and as we go forward. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. So, today is the subject of chapters 7 and 8, which concerns primarily the story and the subject of Melchizedek and the comparison of Jesus to Melchizedek. But to really understand that, you really have to understand how it came about. Melchizedek is only mentioned once in the Old Testament, well, twice, really. Once in the story of uh, Abraham in the book of Genesis and also in uh, Psalm 110, uh, but very briefly. So you really don't get an idea of who Melchizedek is or was or if he was, all right, because it developed into a whole legend. And I want to explain how the Old Testament came together because out of that, then we will better understand who Melchizedek is or was or if he was. And I say that because of the uh, the way it all came about. All right? This might be a long way around of getting to a small subject, but I think it is worthwhile, and many people have asked me questions that indicate that their understanding of the Old Testament is really not what it should be. Okay, uh, And that is true because for centuries in schools, people often dismissed the Old Testament as not being very important. In fact, I heard one priest one time say right from the pulpit that you don't have to worry about the Old Testament. It's not that important. Well, um, you know, is the foundation of your house or your basement important? Uh, that's the way to look at it. So what I'd like to do is to explain how the Old Testament came together. Many people, uh, and there's many uh, Protestant denominations that will say that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. I think I've mentioned that before. And not to put any uh, other Christian denomination down, that is grossly incorrect. Right? Traditions from Abraham down to the time of King David and King Solomon a total of at least a thousand years. We don't know exactly how long because there were no calendars to keep a record of, of the dates, but we figure it was approximately a thousand years from Abraham to David. 
let's put it this way, if you look back at that illustration of the four major periods of Old Testament history, it is 500 years roughly from Abraham to Moses and another 500 years roughly or approximately from uh, Moses to the time of King David. Another 500 years approximately from King David to the Babylonian captivity and almost, almost 500 years, pretty exact, from King David, uh, from the Babylonian captivity to the time of Christ. Alright. But it was either King David or his son Solomon who encouraged the Jewish people to start writing down their histories because everything was handed down verbally, partly because the majority of the people could not read or write. And it was only a certain well-educated group of scribes that could read and write. And therefore, very little of it was written down prior to the time of David or Solomon. We're not sure which one of those two, but most likely Solomon. Because Solomon was very well educated, much much more so than his father David. So that's the likelihood it was Solomon. But that isn't that important. It was one of those two that encouraged the Jewish people to start writing down their histories. Now, the Jewish empire of Israel was divided really into two empires. The north, which was the majority of the land, but not the majority of the people, was called Israel. And the southern part, where it was a smaller area, but more of the people, was called Judah. This did not actually happen officially until after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam took over. But it was there before David came about, and then when his grandson Rehoboam took over after Solomon's death, it came about again. All right. So the divisions were there. They were set up by Joshua and Caleb at God's command at the time that the Israelites came into the promised land. So, let's say that it was Solomon that encouraged the people to start writing down their histories. So, in the south, you had a group of people (coughs) that started to write down what they thought was their histories. And they all did a reasonably good job. That group was called the Yahwist people, after Yahweh, which was the sacred name of God at that time. Then, in the north, you had a similar group of people, and they started writing down their histories. They were called the Eloist. Eloist was, or Elo, and E-L, Whenever you see E-L in some important word in the Old Testament writings, that generally refers to something to God, either a name of God or a tribute to God in some way. 
look at it this way, and I don't want to get into the subject of angels again, but <laughs> if if you think about it, Michael, E-L, Gabriel, Raphael, you see, the E-L on the end means that they are in some way connected to God or servants of God or something of that kind, all right? And so it, that's, keep that in mind. Later on, the A-H, <laughs> A-H, got to get my tongue straightened out here. Uh, the A-H had the same significance, but, but not quite as much. And that carried over even into uh, New Testament times. But then you have two other groups that came along later. The Yahweh started around the ninth, late 10th century, early 9th century B.C. The Eloist came along just a little bit later in the north. Then in the north also you had another group a separate group of people called the Deuteronomists. They came around the 8th century B.C. And they were the ones that were responsible for taking all of the sayings that were commonly known and attributed to Moses and brought into what we call the book of Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy means the second telling of similar stories. So you will see some of the stories in Deuteronomy also repeated in um, some of the other books, the first five books of the Bible. Now, those were histories. They were not theological studies of any kind, and they were not intended to be. They were just what the people remembered as being histories of things in the past that they were told, and which was handed down uh, for centuries. Now we're talking about, you know, the second uh, millennium of Jewish history. All right, so... Over a thousand years elapsed from the time of Abraham to the time these things were written down. And you know what happens over a period of time, how stories can become embellished and changed and so forth and so on. Well, keep that in mind because that's what we're going to be talking about in a little while. All right. The Deuteronomist had an objective besides histories. The Deuteronomist, because of the apostasy, the degradation of Judaism in the 8th and 9th century B.C., particularly in the north, the Deuteronomist's objective in writing the book that we call Deuteronomy was to try to bring the people back to understanding and living according to the teachings of Moses. And that is why Moses is the most influential person in all of the Old Testament writings, particularly the first five books. But he didn't write them. Okay. Now, 
those three books, particularly the Deuteronomist, were not totally accepted by everybody. In fact, Deuteronomy was really put down because the people felt it was preaching to them and they didn't want to be preached to. So the people in the north didn't accept the book of Deuteronomy at all. In fact, the writers were all really put to death in the same way that the prophets were because the people didn't like what the prophets had to say. People didn't like what the Deuteronomists had to say. So when the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., the people who wrote the book of Deuteronomy carried that to the south, where it wasn't accepted either. But it was maintained by somebody in the temple. And later on, at the time of Josiah, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, was repairing and had or was working on repairing the temple, Solomon's temple, they found this book. And Josiah tried to get the people interested in it. But unfortunately, again, they weren't interested. They didn't want to be preached to. But one thing did happen that was important. When they were carted off, the southern kingdom was carted off to Babylon. Southern kingdom was overrun by Babylon in 587 B.C. And they remained there for approximately 50 years. They took the book of Deuteronomy with them. And it was, you know, as I we've said before, when they first were overcome by the Babylonians and the temple was destroyed and the city was destroyed, you know, they whined and cried, Oh Lord, how could you let this happen to us? You promised us protection and so forth and so on. And the Lord said, Well, you know, you kept, you didn't keep your end of the bargain. That is your end of the commitment. Remember the first commitment or first covenant was bilateral. You do this and I'll do that, etc., etc. Okay, they didn't keep any of that. So that's why they were punished by being overrun and taken to Babylon. But somebody, and we feel it was the prophet Ezekiel, was brave enough and smart enough and inspired enough to take the book of Deuteronomy with it. And after they had spent a while whining and crying and about Babylon, they finally came to realize that it was their own sins and faults that got them there as punishment. So they decided to do something about it. And that's when they set up the synagogue system. The synagogue system of Judaism was born in Babylon, where they set up little houses houses of prayer and study because there was no temple the priesthood was sort of put down not totally destroyed but put down there was no high priest at the time 
but one developed out of that. So the priesthood sort of took over because there wasn't any structure or leadership. So when they finally decided to start studying the book of Deuteronomy, oh, the lights went on. Finally, they understood why they were in Babylon. And they were going to do this, and they were going to do that to make amends, and they were going to really understand and accept and live by the law. Well, then the pendulum swung way too far the other way. And that is when they started worshiping the law. But you still had fragments of three different groups of people writing different histories of their faith. So it wasn't until after they came back to Israel at the end of the 6th century and the beginning of the 5th century B.C. did the priest Ezra decide to do something about it. Remember we had said earlier that Nehemiah had taken over sort of the reconstruction of the temple and the redevelopment of the people as a community in Israel. But it was Ezra who sort of helped them to reestablish their faith. And the faith was based primarily on the book of Deuteronomy. But as you know, if you read uh, some of those books, they were not written in the way we have them today. It was the priest Ezra who took all of the writings from the north and the two from the two from the north and the one from the south. And because he was a priest, he and a group of priests got together and became the fourth group of people that managed to work on their history, Jewish history, and reassembled or re-edited the writings and brought them together in the way we have today. That is Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Well, there was no beginning. Somehow they wanted something to connect Abraham to the past. And that is how the book of Genesis was written, primarily by the priestly class. And he was, whether it was Ezra or or somebody in his group, we don't know for sure, Um, but we know it was the priestly class that brought the book book, that the book of Genesis uh, into being to give the other four a beginning. And it was sort of made it uh, a complete story then from the beginning of creation to the time of Abraham and all the way down to the time of Jacob and his 12 sons having to migrate into Egypt 
and so forth and so on. So those four books covered the earliest part of Judaism. Now, I think you probably already can see in your mind how things can change when something that happened thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago, if not thousands, uh, and of course we have no idea the time between Abraham and the time of creation and Adam and Eve. So there are and could be thousands of years in there sort of uh, brought together rather quickly. And I think, I personally think, that the writer of the book of Genesis was very well inspired because we can learn more from the first five chapters of Genesis about God the Father than we can in all the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, and if you go back and read that and think about the Father's or the Holy Spirit's inspiring the writers, they had to be inspired. There is just absolutely no way a human mind could come up with the stories that those first five chapters give us. Not only once we get through the creation stories and the Adam and Eve story and the expulsion of Adam and Eve all indicate God's mercy and God's attention and God's love and protection of his people because it was the implementation, the beginning of not only civilization in the way we think about it, but it was also the beginning of God's plan of salvation being started. So, extremely important. Now, how does this all come together? The fact that these were stories, particularly in the early days of Genesis, that were not written down and fashioned into a written source until hundreds of years later, the writers had to use their mind and their, their creative intelligence, you might say, to fill in the gaps. Let me give you uh, a sort of a side comparison. I just read a book that was just written called Gutenberg's Bible. It's a, it was a novel or it's a historical novel, I think is the proper way to say it, about the development of the printing press and Gutenberg and his efforts to print the Bible. Now, that was done in the 15th and 16th century A.D., of course. And the writer had very little to go on because there wasn't a lot of history. Gutenberg had to develop the printing press in secret because the church at that time, as well as the scribes, people who wrote letters and books as a profession, were very much against it. 
because that put them out of a job. And it's interesting because the writer brings a lot of that into this story, how one of Gutenberg's uh, associates was one of these scribes, and it was his job, uh, and he depended on his job of writing letters for people and copying books as well as copying a scripture uh, for the monks. And to get involved in something like this, but he could see the advantage of it. All right. But it says right in the front that many of the details were the imagination of the writer. But the people involved in the basic events were factual and could be um, identified and supported and so forth. But the conversations and some of the incidentals were all the product of the writer's imagination. That is the essence of a historical novel, quote-unquote novel. You have the same thing with many of the stories of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Genesis. Remember, by the 5th century, the Jewish people had been under the domination of the Egyptians, then the Persians, then the uh, Babylonians, uh, the Assyrians, and so forth and so on. And what they did was they sort of assimilated a lot of the legends and the traditions of those people. So much of the book of Genesis is also in the book of other uh, faiths and religions and historical people, particularly Mesopotamians. Because by the time of the Babylonian captivity, uh, there was a lot of writing that was available uh, from the Chaldeans and the Mesopotamians and the early Babylonians, etc., that these people, uh, the Jewish people in captivity, were anxious to read just to educate themselves. They had nothing else to do. They were slaves to a degree. We would call them indentured servants today, not slaves in the, the way we often think about slaves. So, what I'm trying to get at is, when we start talking about Melchizedek, he is one of these stories that came about through being handed down over a period of time. We know absolutely nothing about this man. He is mentioned only in two verses in the book of Genesis, that he was a priest uh, and the king of Salem. Now, anybody know where Salem is today? Hmm? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay. 
going up to Salem. Remember, Jerusalem was founded on a plateau, a mountain. It's kind of a short mountain today. You wouldn't even recognize it as a mountain because the valleys uh, that surround it have been so filled in. In fact, I was reading just something the other day how uh, in some excavation they had to get down, they had to go down somewhere between 40 and 70 feet of debris and rubble before they could hit original soil. Uh, but nevertheless, Jerusalem was built on a mountain, what they called a mountain at the time, sort of a plateau, and you'll often see throughout Old Testament writings, particularly the Psalms, how this is God's holy mountain. So, also in Old Testament writings and to very early New Testament writings, whenever they would talk about Jerusalem, they would always talk about going up to Jerusalem, regardless if they were north, south, east, or west of it. Of it. It was always going up. And it didn't mean anything other than going up the mountain. Okay. The idea of Melchizedek became a myth or a legend to these people in early history. And he was looked upon with a great deal of honor uh, and to some degree enjoyment. He was looked upon as, you know, a savior and a lot of other things that really were, could not be verified. But nevertheless, he was a very important person, very important character. Now, do we have any legends like that today? Can anybody think of any, any important person? Hmm? Paul Bunyan. All right, Paul Bunyan. What about St. Christopher? Okay. The reason St. Christopher was sort of uh, demoted, you might say, from the canon of, of saints is because there is no recorded history of St. Christopher. That grew up again as a legend. Now, probably all of you have St. Christopher medals and uh, car stickers or uh, little uh, things for your automobile uh, or people going on long journeys or travels uh, ask for uh, prayers from St. Christopher. There's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with any of that except that you cannot verify that there ever was a St. Christopher. So we have the same kind of legends uh, today. You know, another one, of course, is Santa Claus. You tell little kids that there's no Santa Claus, and, of course, that's the first thing that will, they'll start running off to Mama to find out. Um, so we do, we do have legends that uh, come about like that. But the legend of uh, Melchizedek is, is a little different because it was looked upon with great honor and respect. And that is what the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to get at, is to show you in many ways how Jesus 
not only can compare to Melchizedek, but far exceed him because he is, Jesus is reality. Jesus is God. Alright. And that's what we're trying to do. The second point that I'm trying to make in a way here is that when you read Old Testament history or if you read uh, a synopsis or a commentary, God forbid the one that's written here for this parish, but um, if you read commentaries and it says such and such is like such and such else, you've got to be careful. The word like is sort of uh, unique, you might say, to English the English language. You don't have the word like in most other languages. The word like should mean, it doesn't always mean, but should mean it is similar to. It does not always mean, and it should not always mean, particularly when it comes out of Old Testament writings, the same as. It does not mean the same as. It means it is similar to. And what you have to do is to stop and try to find out what those similarities are. And it's in developing in your mind what the similarities are that gives you a broader view of what Melchizedek is all about or what one thing is like another. Right. Now, in this, in this study of Melchizedek, I'm reading from another book now. Melchizedek is being compared to Jesus, or Jesus is being compared to Melchizedek you might say. And I'll get into the actual wording of that story here. But I want to go back a little bit. We seem to cover the idea of priesthood in the last meeting uh, probably more than you even wanted to. But uh, for a review purpose, because it fits into what we're going to be talking about today, here is some wording about the Jewish priesthood as it was uh between the Babylonian captivity and the time of Christ. It says, uh, the outline of uh, several historical observations concerning the Jewish priesthood are, and I'm going to skip the wording and just go to the highlights here, is the Jewish priesthood uh, was conceived as a hereditary system. In other words, handed down from father to son, or in the case of the last one that we are aware of, Annas and Caiaphas, from father to son-in-law. All right. Uh, the duties of the Jewish priesthood also included such responsibilities as teaching and advising, and to attend to the mediation of God on behalf of the people. In other words, to try to bring uh, God into a realistic understanding uh, for the people. 
the Jewish priesthood was also responsible for daily rounds of sacrifices and offerings administered in the Jewish temple. Remember, there was only one temple uh, from the time of King David uh, to the time of its destruction in 70 AD, a period of over uh, a thousand years. Actually, there were two temples, of course, Solomon's temple and Herod's temple. Okay. Then also it says here, although priestly lineage by itself did not necessarily equate with elite social status, though possession of such lineage was potentially a source of greater honor and prestige. In fact, the high priest was far more important uh, at the time of Christ and had far more um, authority than the king, King Herod. It says, during the period of the historical ministry of Jesus, the office of the Jewish high priest as opposed to the office of ordinary priest, circulated among a relatively small number of powerful families. And it was from the ranks of such elite persons that the representatives of the Roman Empire appointed the high priest with the expectation that he would promote the interests of Rome, uh, Roman provincial policy the high priest was expected to keep alive the tradition of liberation initiated in the Exodus, and yet one does not connect with the other. One is actually opposed to the other. In other words, the first part of the previous statement was that there was a uh, coalition between uh, cohesion or whatever uh, between Rome and the king at the time of Christ. In other words, Rome actually appointed the king. But Herod, uh, there again, handed down from Herod the Great in the middle of the first century B.C. to Herod Agrippa and his sons, that lasted up until the uh, 70 AD to the destruction of the temple. So you have a number of things that the priesthood was actually responsible for. Now, let's go into chapter 7. First of all, are there any questions on what we talked about so far? No questions. All right. Melchizedek, a type of Christ, or something like Christ, but be careful, not the same as, says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, and we have no idea where that came from, met Abraham as a return from his defeat of the four kings. And we don't really know who they are either. And blessed him. Blessed Abraham, that is. And Abraham apportioned to him a tenth of everything. Now, that's where the word tithing comes from. And that was a general custom 
of somebody to share the uh, spoils, you might say, of war that the conqueror received and divided or gave to someone who helped him. That's all. But there is the point of outside help in this comparison again. His name first means righteous king, and he was also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, because this word Salem is meant to mean the same as Shalom, which is the Jewish word for peace. And Shalom is uh, a, is used as a greeting, you might say, also in Jewish circles. Okay. Without father, mother, or ancestry, without beginning of days or ends of life. And that is because no one knew where he came from. Obviously, if he was a human being, he had to have a mother and father. Um, and, you know, there had to be something before this event in order to make him the king in the first place. Um, but there is no historical uh, records of any kind. So that's how he came out of the blue, you might say, and became a myth more than a reality. But it is that myth that we are trying to compare Jesus to. Uh, not the idea of the individual. Because as this... Um, and I'm using, as this book will tell you, I believe it says on the next page, the reader needs to be reminded that Hebrews has no interest in Melchizedek in himself as a historical figure. The entire argument or comparison is an interpret interpretation of the Old Testament passage as it compares to Jesus Christ in the new understanding of Christ's people or God's people. It says, See how great he is to whom the patriarch Abraham indeed gave a tenth of his spoils, the descendants of Levi who received the office of priesthood have a commandment according to the law to exact tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, although they also have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, who was not of their ancestry, that is, Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, who had received the promises. So we go on and on and on. I want to sort of skip over some of this because I think it's, it's not as important for us and we've heard it many times before. But if you go over to uh, verse 11, it says, If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood on the basis of which the priests received the law, what need would there still have been for another priest? to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, 
and not reckoned according to the order of Aaron. When there, see the whole idea is that this writer of Hebrews is trying to say now, and we presume that this was probably written after the destruction of the temple. And, of course, the priesthood was wiped out at that point in time. And the people to whom this is being addressed were sort of waffling about staying within Christianity or going back. And the whole argument for the entire book is saying that once you have accepted in your mind and your heart of Jesus and salvation only through Jesus, you can't go back. Because there's nothing to go back to. And that is why the comparison is here. Is that Jesus fulfills all of the things that the priesthood of Judaism could not fill. And, for example, the priest of Judaism had to offer sin offerings every day. Jesus did that once with his life on the cross, which was sufficient for all mankind. And as we partake of that through the Holy Eucharist, the celebration of the Mass, then that is sufficient. We will get into next week something that uh, a lot of people are not aware of. They often say, I, I feel like I'm such a sinner, I've got to go to Mass. The Mass is an offering of thanksgiving. Anytime, anywhere, any way, by anyone. It is not a sin offering. That was done once on the cross. Is that clear? The Mass is an offering of thanksgiving because of that one-time event on the cross. And that is the main comparison that Hebrews is trying to make in this book. Regardless of Melchizedek and all of that mystery there, or mystique, I should say, uh, Jesus has given us the way, the truth, and the life, you might say, by his life and death on the cross. And if we open our mind and our heart and accept that, then there's no point, there is no way you can go back to something that was strictly human and not eternal. But God is giving us the door to eternal life. So on one hand, a former commandment is annulled because of its weakness. The weakness, of course, is referring to the... uh, deaths of the priesthood, the Jewish priesthood, and uselessness. For the law brought nothing to perfection. That is, the Jewish Mosaic law brought nothing to perfection. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God and to the degree, degree, that is, 
that this happened not without the taking of an oath. For others became priests, again, Jewish priests, uh, without an oath. But he, with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not repent, you are a priest forever, again, Psalm 110. To that same degree has Jesus also uh, become the guarantee of an even better covenant. That, of course, is the new and eternal covenant. Those priests who were many because they were prevented by death from remaining in office, but he, because he remains forever, that has a priesthood that does not pass away, and therefore, he is always able to save those who approach God through him, since he lives forever to make intercession for them. And that's, of course, his role today in heaven. God I've been asked over the years, well, after Jesus went back to heaven, what did he do up there? Because if the Holy Spirit takes over the role of guiding mankind, uh, from that point on, from the ascension on till the end of, of the world, what does God do? Or what does Jesus do? You know, sit around, you know, and, and enjoy, puts his feet up and enjoy it. He is, as it says right here, he is interceding for mankind as we pray to him. Right? And our prayers should always be directed to the Father through Jesus. That makes sense? A lot of people are often, you know, skittish about that. All of our prayers should be directed to the Father through Jesus. Now, you can go through Mary, you can go through the saints, you can go through your Holy Grandmother, it makes no difference. But the idea is all prayers should flow to the Father through Jesus. It can be through other people as well. Is this beginning to make sense? You don't sound too convincing. Are you getting anything out of this book? Okay. All right. Let's go on because we're coming into chapter 8 without sort of mentioning it. So the main point of what has been said here We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. See, he's using, the author here is using all these words that would be familiar to the people at that time period who are concerned about reverting back to Judaism a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle that the Lord, not man, has set up. Now, every high priest is appointed to other to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, the necessity of this one also to have something to offer 
And what is the offer? Himself. If then he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law. They offer a copy and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. They worship a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, as Moses was warned when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For he says, see that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. This goes back to the story of the creating of the Ark of the Covenant, a job that Moses was given to be the main article within the tent tabernacle. The tent tabernacle meaning the the movable tabernacle where they were wandering through the desert. And the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to represent God's presence among his people. But we don't need that today. All right? Because we know that if we have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that he is God himself. And we can go directly to him. Awfully quiet in here. It's like when children are playing and it's too quiet, you wonder. I'm going to go on, even though this is more for next week, but I'd like to go on because uh, we have not only the time here, but uh, it's kind of connected in a way. It says, uh, verse 7 says, If that first covenant had been faultless, no place would have been sought for a second one. But he finds fault with them and says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will conclude a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be a, it would not be like the covenant I made with their fathers. There's that word like again, you gotta be careful. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers in these Now talking about why and how it's not like. The day I took them by the hand to lead them from forth from the land of Egypt, for they did not stand by my covenant. And I ignored them, says the Lord. And that comes out of Psalm 81. Not the words here, but the meaning. But if this is the covenant, but this is the covenant, I will establish with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, after the destruction of the temple, I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his fellow, I'm sorry, and they shall not teach each one uh, his fellow citizens and kinsmen, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, the least to the greatest. Now this is again written by uh, Jeremiah, and it is written to the people 
in Babylon during their time of captivity. Because the prophet Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah both were prophesying to the people of Judah who were in Babylon that when they came back they could expect these beautiful things that are being promised here. And of course what would also happen in the near future. For I will forgive their evil doing and remember their sins no more. Now not only not only do we have uh, this prophecy from Jeremiah, but we have a very similar one from Ezekiel chapter 34 as well. Okay. I want to leave chapter 9 and the first part of chapter 10 until next week uh, because it drifts off into another subject. But let's open it to any questions that you might have. Yes, sir. Well, Jesus tells us right up front that that's a parable. And a parable is just a story to illustrate a point. But I mean, they didn't necessarily call the parable from the Old Testament. Would it, would it be? Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, yes, it could have been. Yes. Yes. We have seen, and over a thousand years of carrying this down word by word, you know, handing it down between generation to generation, yeah, anything can happen. And so you got to be a little careful when you get to the so-called historical events of the Old Testament. Yeah. And the further back you go, the more careful you have to be. Yeah. See, from the time of the Babylonian captivity, uh, the early part of the 6th century B.C., those time periods have a lot of documentation. And so we can verify much of that. And we can pretty much substantiate within a, you know, a few degrees of one way or the other of the accuracy of the time periods. But after, before that, you know, it's pretty difficult to verify uh, a lot of the details. So you're right. Uh, this Melchizedek story could be like a parable rather than an actual event. All right, but you've got to be careful. This was a Hollywood story, obviously. All right. Now, the lady talks about... Yeah, but you see, what they do in most of Hollywood stories is they develop a story that will sell. And they're not interested in accuracy. I'll give you an example. And this may be... Oh, I, I, I know, but the word documentary, you got to be very careful. Okay? One time I watched a similar documentary on the building of the ark. It might have been the same one. 
but this was a long time ago. And it was an interesting story. But of course, with me and the background, I question every darn thing, you know. <laughs> but it was interesting because at one particular point, and I was thinking, if this was built where they say it was built, where did the lumber come from? Because there were virtually no trees in that community. All right? Now, at one point in time, it showed automatically these these uh, long pieces of lumber uh, just automatically appearing somewhere. But the telling effect was it had the computer barcode on the end of every piece, like it just came from Home Depot. Uh, well, you got to be careful because Noah, there are three major uh, points being made in the book of Genesis. One is the Torah of Babel. One is the Noah and the, and the ark story. And the other one is the Cain and Abel uh, story. Those are all in there to indicate how sin expanded exponentially, you might say, from the time of Adam and Eve up to the time of Abraham. They are not historical. They cannot be historically verified. None of them. Whether it's Noah and the Ark or the Torah Babel, these again are legends. There is no proof of any of that. And so, as interesting as Hollywood might want to make it, uh, there, it's anybody's guess as to the accuracy. So, I'm not saying that there, what you saw was not totally fiction or anything, but you just got to be very careful. Right? Because what Hollywood does is make something that is interesting, very well done, but it has to sell, otherwise they're not going to make it. And you got to be very careful about the accuracy. That's why when I watch any of those on television, I usually sit there with a pad of uh, paper and pencil, you know, or a pen, and I jot down all the stuff so I can check it out later. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, that spoils it for me, but, you know. Yes, Rita? Yes. Yes. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's an interesting point, Rita. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, and I've actually seen many of them, you know. They are, they are housed in the Book of the Museum in Jerusalem. Most of it, not all. But I have two books. One gives me copies of what is available, and the other one sort of does a translation. Anybody want to look at them, I'll be glad to bring them in next week. But that's different because here is something that you can actually touch and feel and read. If you can read that, you know, ancient uh, Jewish writing. But the Dead Sea Scrolls is a totally different story. They can be verified because they're in existence, and we know that. Yeah. And, and they, you know, they themselves are very interesting. Yes. Well, not in Jerusalem yet, at least. 
Yeah. And also, they've all, they've all been photographed, uh, in, you know, put on, uh, all kinds of electronic, uh, documents to preserve them. Yes, ma'am. It's not, it's not totally, it's not totally fiction. It's the best that they could do as far as remembering who was the father of whom. All right. But you gotta take that with a grain of salt as well. That's right. But you have the same thing in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, you have the lineage uh, of Jesus, and it goes from, um, one goes forward, one goes backward, I forget how it works. Uh, the one in Matthew goes from Abraham to Jesus. And it is reasonably factual, uh, with some exception, and I'll get to that in a minute. You have the other one in the Gospel of Luke, which goes from Mary back to Abraham, back to Adam. Well, there's no way that, 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 that's right, because no one has any idea who Abraham's father and mother were. Okay? Now, let me give you another example of the inaccuracy, particularly um, if you take that diagram that I gave you, it very clearly states, based somewhat on Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, where he goes through the lineage of Jesus from Abraham to Jesus, and he says at the end in verse 17 uh, that the first group is 14 generations uh, from Abraham to Abraham to David. I have to stop and think. From Abraham to David, 14 generations, which of course is incorrect, and 14 generations from uh, David to the Jewish monarchy, at the end of the monarchy at the Babylonian captivity, and another 14 generations from the Babylonian captivity to Jesus. That's, that's what it says. Now, he's trying to make a point. Historically, that is incorrect because if you apply any number to what is a generation, it just doesn't mathematically work out. Because there's a thousand years between Abraham and King David. So, you know, 40 times 14 is how many? 560, 560 years. All right? But it's a thousand years between Abraham and King David. Now, between King David and the Babylonian captivity is really only about 400 years. So 14 generations would be too much, you see. So, and then if you go from the Babylonian captivity to Jesus, it's just closer to 500 years. But even so, it just doesn't fit. But that's not, he's not interested in the accuracy of what he's saying. Matthew is trying to make a point 
of something else there. And really that, that point is authority and what was going on during that time. And that's what this is all about. What was going on in that time. So you got to take a lot of that stuff with a grain of salt. Yeah. Yes, Joe? Well, that's true. But if you put any number, that's right. No, you can't. It just doesn't work. Okay. And that's why I say based somewhat on that. The whole idea is what I'm trying to do in here is not get accurate down to the uh, the year, but say that within those four segments of time, Judaism changed significantly in its structure and its pattern and its objective. Okay. And so when the Jewish people say that this is, you know, so-and-so, this is gospel, this is something that we've got to uh, obey or do, I, I always say, well, yeah, but what about in the background? None of those people were able to do that because it didn't exist. So, you know, it's entirely how you want to use it and why it's there. Does that help you? No. But you see, if you, if you look at the theological points within the first five chapters, eleven chapters of Genesis, it is amazing, I find, that anyone could think of that. And therefore, the author, and we believe it was Ezra or his priestly group in the fifth, sixth century, early sixth century, uh, BC, uh, were very much inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that, knowing that it would be used down throughout the ages uh, to establish a beginning. Yes? All of the Bible is inspired, yes. But remember, it's not the words that are inspired, it's the message. Because the words have been changed over and over and over. You know, if, even if you get uh, a change from the Latin to the English, the words had to be changed because they, uh, there's not a lot of direct translation. That's right. That's, yeah. Uh, and, you know, even the King James Version, which was one of the official first uh, translations in the English has now been retranslated, you might say, into more modern English. So it's not the words of the Bible that are inspired, it's the message. And the message in most cases has not been changed. Yeah. You gotta be a little careful on two books called one is called The Way and the other is called Good News for Modern Men. They are good, but they are not official Bibles. They are what we call paraphrases, meaning that they were written by one person 
for the purpose of educating young people, you know, early teenagers, who were more interested in the stories of the Bible rather than the theology of the Bible. So you got to be careful of those. They are not recommended for adults uh, for any reason. Uh, not that they're forbidden or anything like that. It's just that I would stay away from them if you really want to get into uh, serious uh, reading of the Bible for devotional purposes. Okay. Yes, June? You know, the Jewish people are really fascinating people, aren't they? Yes, they are. And they're good people. I'm not... When I, when I talk about the Jewish people, particularly of the Old Testament, they themselves, from their own writings, have criticized themselves over and over and over. Unfortunately, have, they haven't learned anything. And, uh, so, but no, I've had many good Jewish friends, um, and they have done a lot of good for mankind. So I'm not putting them down. It is their faith that I feel that is lacking. Yeah. yeah. The actually it has eight if you count them. Um, that comes from again a legend. The gentleman, uh, Mr. Bauer, asked, "Why does the Jewish menorah have seven? Actually, it has." Eight, I believe. That one shows seven, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Actually, it, it, most of the menorahs have eight uh, candles on them. It comes from a legend uh, developed in the second century during the War of the Maccabees. And the Maccabees were trying to get rid of the Greek uh, conquerors. This is when the Greek Empire was breaking up and the Seleucid kings, uh, that is the ten kings, divided the Greek empire up. And uh, you had five in the Mideast and five in North Africa. And they tried to uh, eradicate Judaism altogether. And they desecrated the temple, etc., etc. All of this is in... Uh, the first and second book of Maccabees. There is a legend where this one town, I forget which one, uh, and that's not important, was surrounded and the Greek army was going to starve these people uh, to death by not allowing water or food to get in. And this poor family, the Maccabees, who were at the head of this, uh, had just enough food uh, for uh, eight days. And it was going to last, you know, this siege was going to last a lot longer than that. So they prayed to God to multiply the food so that it would last for them to get out of this predicament that they were in. And God granted that. You have several of those kinds of stories. Another one is in uh, the first book of Kings, where Elijah, uh, and this was just uh, read in church here not too long ago, Elijah asks this woman for 
a loaf of bread, and she says, I've only got enough for me and my son, and after we eat that, we're going to die, because they had no more. And he said, please, if you will, uh, and he inferred. He didn't say, of course, uh, that he would uh, help them out. And so she knew he was a holy man, so she went, and she used the flour and the oil and whatever else was necessary to make the bread for him and gave it to him. And miraculously, her bin of flour and her jug of oil uh, not only flowed up, but remained enough for her throughout the season until rains came and another harvest and she was able to eat again normally. That's that's uh, Elijah. The menorah is in reference to the eight days uh, that was left of the food of the Maccabees family and from that point on they celebrated that particular point with a candle that had eight candles on it. Okay. And they light one candle each day, something like we do in our Lenten um, wreaths. Okay. Now, the Lenten wreath is something that is not, it has come up through the ranks, you might say. It is not something that is decreed by the church. It has been accepted by the church, but it was not uh, actually uh, initiated by the church. The other one is the holding hands at Mass. That is not part of church rules or church law. It did not come up through the church. That came from the renewal uh, movement that was very active in the middle of the last century. So we have a lot of those kind of legends that develop or practices that develop over a period of time uh, that the church itself does not establish, but they gradually work into part of our uh, understanding and our belief system. Any other questions? Well, I've exhausted you, and I'm exhausted too. <laughs> Anyways, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you for so many graces and blessings that you give to us through Holy Scripture and through the church. Help us then to learn to appreciate the church, not necessarily every priest in every parish, but the church in its concept in general. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name.